This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You must Welcome to the debut episode of Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. To create this special eight-episode series, I've invited eight writers to contribute stories in the You Must Remember This style, dedicated to exploring the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. Throughout this series, our storytellers will touch on issues of body image, race, commercialism, ageism, and more, while telling stories that span the silent era, the entire history of classical Hollywood, and into the 1990s. Our first storyteller is Megan Keister. Megan is a writer, comedian, and the co-author of the Audible original The Indignities of Being a Woman with Meryl Marco. Megan was one of over 200 writers who pitched a story for this season, and the story she pitched was about an actress and a media frenzy that I had never heard of before. Megan, tell us, who was Molly O'Day? You could say that she was an ingenue of the silent film era, and things sort of took a turn for the worse when she started gaining weight and was unable to get rid of it by traditional means. So in your piece, you use a word that I had also never heard before, and I think we're both a little unsure what the proper pronunciation is. <laughs> yeah. It is derived from the French, and the French pronunciation would seem to be avoir du poids. But if you go into a pronunciation key on YouTube, which I did, the robots say it, aver du poise. Aver du poise. What does that even mean? Well, it was used routinely in the 20s to describe excess weight for whatever reason. The original definition of the term when it first arose in England in the 1500s was um, goods sold by weight which is funny that they used it to describe generally women's weight at the time, basically implying that a woman is a product. It was used as a keyword for fleshiness. I don't know why it came about. I don't know why it left the vernacular, maybe because it's so hard to pronounce. Join us, won't you? As Megan Keister tells us the story of Molly O'Day and Hollywood's first headline-grabbing weight loss surgery. At least she didn't die. She could have, easily. It would have made great fodder for the magazines, which documented every change in her ever-fluctuating weight. Their pages were riddled with cautionary tales of Catherine Grant and Lottie Pickford, who dieted so drastically they became invalids, of Barbara Lamar, the girl who was too beautiful, so desperate to reduce she ingested a tapeworm. All of this was reported breathlessly, just like Molly's own troubles with avoid a poids. 
The magazines would cast blame and condemn the industry in columns that rang alongside reducing tips from the stars. It was the end of World War I and the dawn of consumerism. Zaftigness, once considered acceptable, desired even, in the years preceding the war, was now considered a liability. It was the beginning of advertisements warning you of the perils of halitosis. It ruins romance, according to Listerine. Body odor. Freedom from it is essential to loveliness, says Mum. Disfiguring superfluous body hair and extra pounds, which destroy beauty and injure health. Post-war, the body became, like everything, a commodity. She didn't die. But the press, the public, the studio that held her contract, they all wanted her thin. And if she wasn't, she was dead to them. So she did what she had to do. A magazine photo of her spent and pale, weakly smiling from her hospital bed, accompanied copy that asked, Will the fat return? That remains to be seen. Producer Al Santel believes that the operation will do no good, for there is fat all over Molly's body. She is a splendid actress. Her director, her producer, her public know this. But unless she is more sylph-like, her art will be completely wasted. She was 18 years old. Before Molly O'Day was famous enough to have her body scrutinized in magazines, she was Suzanne Noonan, daughter of Hannah Kelly, a singer who canceled a five-year contract with the Metropolitan Opera Company to marry Judge Thomas Francis Noonan, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New Jersey. Thomas was a pillar of the community, well-regarded by his peers, and well-off enough to afford two servants. Hannah and Thomas, staunch Irish Catholics, had 11 children. Suzanne, born in 1909, was the youngest. For the first few years of Suzanne's life, New Jersey was the film capital of the world. In 1909, no one could have anticipated the movies moving west, much like no one could have anticipated the sudden death of her father at the age of 49 when Suzanne was but an infant. By 1924, the family was broke in Los Angeles, the place they ventured in the hopes of curing one child's rheumatism, had become the epicenter of cinema. Five of Suzanne's six brothers had served in World War I. Her mother was presented with a silver urn by the government for her children's service. Suzanne's eldest sister was a Red Cross nurse. The other three, Virginia, Isabel, and Suzanne, tried their hands at acting to help support the family. Virginia, newly dubbed Sally O'Neill, excelled, quickly getting a contract with MGM and appearing with Joan Crawford and Constance Bennett in the 1925 film Sally, Irene, and Mary. But Isabel, while possessing a perfect figure, the slim, pert, flapper ideal, never had her heart in it, so much so she didn't even bother changing her name. Suzanne was first renamed Sue O'Neill, then Kitty Kelly, and finally, when a New York actress already named Kitty Kelly objected, to Molly O'Day. Molly landed her first role at the age of 14 in 1925. It was in Yes, Yes, Nanette, a comedy short co-directed by Stan Laurel and featuring Oliver Hardy. Short-haired and long-limbed, with an expressive face, she spent eight months playing sassy sister and daughter roles in Hal Roach pictures. When the association ended, it was, according to Molly, due to her lack of experience and seeming lack of talent. I wasn't any good, she would say. I didn't know anything about acting, and I was not destined for pictures. By her own recollection, after leaving Roach's employ, Molly didn't find work for over a year. I'd go and have screen tests and nothing happened, she remembered. Then First National called me up one day. 
They knew I was Sally O'Neill's sister, and I suppose that had something to do with it. They took some tests. I talked to some people. And the first thing I knew, I had signed a contract, and I was in the patent leather kid. It was almost like a dream. 1927's The Patent Leather Kid was a picture of grand scope, costing over a million dollars to produce. It was an enormous success, garnering a Best Actor nomination for its leading man, Richard Barthelmess, at the first Academy Awards. Molly had beaten out hundreds of hopefuls to play the female lead, which rocketed her to stardom. Her performance showed tremendous range. Her face, which painted each emotion from pleasure to pain in broad yet natural strokes, was ideal for a silent film actress. Molly was heavily praised in the press, with the LA Times declaring she had great dramatic depth and acts with sincerity. One trade publication predicted that Molly would, on the basis of her performance, soon become one of the most coveted players in the industry and should climb to great heights. One year from today, we'll say, we told you so. Writing off the success of The Patent Leather Kid, Molly was chosen as a baby star of 1928 by Wampus, the Western Association of Motion Pictures Advertisers. Her sister Sally had been named as a baby star two years prior, and since then her career had flourished, with Sally nabbing lead roles in MGM Pictures and even working with esteemed director D.W. Griffith. But with the crowning of Molly as a baby star came the advent of Baby Fat, which stifled her ability to excel like her sister. Everything I ate seemed to add pounds, Molly recalled. I was a growing kid and I was hungry. And it was the streamline era in pictures when a girl had to have a figure like a lead pencil. I didn't have that kind. In an attempt to fake it, Molly wore lung-crushing brassieres and skin-tight girdles. But it was to no avail. Even with the best shapewear in Hollywood, Molly was not able to fool Picture Play magazine, which wrote that her mounting avoirdupois appeared in the specific locations most clearly discernible to that enemy of flesh, the camera. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the months that had transpired since the filming of The Patent Leather Kid, Molly's weight gain was not only noticeable, it was widely remarked upon in the movie magazines. Molly was never skin and bones. One magazine referred to her figure in Patent Leather Kid as not exactly slim, but merely pleasantly plump. But the addition of 20 pounds on her 5'2 frame was putting her career in peril. Molly has as bright a future as any girl in Cellulodia, and yet she is hovering on a precipice overlooking obscurity, one article warned, all because she's inclined to be a bit fat. It's hard enough being a teenager without your weight being variety front page news, which in Molly's case it was. Three times. The first instance, in October 1927, said the 17-year-old Molly was getting dangerously plump. Molly, who had just reteamed with Barthelmas in a film called The Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come, was given three months off by First National, the studio who held her contract. But this would be no vacation. Molly was to spend her 90-day forced hiatus in Arrowhead Springs, where she would be expected to lose 25 pounds with the help of a dietitian. 
The fact that the press was essentially bullying a child was beside the point, as was Molly's undeniable acting talent. The message was clear. Lose the weight or commit career suicide. Molly's employer could make such demands, denying her work and forcing her to leave town until she lost weight, because it was in her contract. Molly's agreement with First National guaranteed 40 weeks of paid salary a year and 12 weeks of suspension without pay if she violated its terms, which contained a facial and physical disfigurement clause. At the time, such clauses were standard in all contracts, an admission that actresses' faces and figures were their fortunes. As the clause in Molly's contract, dated January 3, 1927, read, In the event that she suffer any facial or physical disfigurement materially detracting from her appearance on the screen, then and thereupon this agreement shall be suspended both as to services and compensation during the period of such disability or incapacity. First National considered post-adolescent pudge to be an incapacitating disfigurement. Molly wasn't the first actress on their roster who had been told to lose or get lost. Doris Dawson, a fellow teen contract player who shared the screen with Molly in The Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come, said, The first thing they did after I signed my contract was to advise me to reduce. But Doris was compliant and understanding. I was absolutely pudgy, she acknowledged. Appearance is just about half a stardom, don't you think? A second Variety front page, dated July 4th, 1928, said Molly was still under contract to First National, but would not be paid salary until she lost weight. Her earlier three-month attempt was fruitless, and she was withdrawn as the lead in a film, The Barker. When Molly was unable to reduce, the studio recast the picture with Dorothy McHale in her stead. The theatrical poster displays McHale, coyly smiling in a hula outfit, displaying her taut midriff. While the normal weight for a girl of Molly's height was 119 pounds, the average screen actress at that time was 108. Molly was told by the studio to not let the scale hit 109. Variety's main headline that day, in bold caps, read, May West struts her stuff. West was 5 foot 1 and 121 pounds. But no one ever said the entertainment industry operated from a place of logic in much the same way no one could ever claim it to be a meritocracy. Outside of weight thing... Miss O'Day is considered one of the best bets to have appeared on the screen in the past three years, the paper nagged. The third and final Variety front page, which ran in September 1928, declared that, many months after The Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come, the film in which she was so plump that thereafter directors passed up her name with consistent perseverance, Molly was once again collecting salary from First National. Her status on the payroll had been restored after Molly undertook what Variety called one of the most strenuous reducing campaigns in Hollywood annals. What that strenuous campaign had entailed was unprecedented. According to Molly's contract, she had 24 weeks total in which to lose the weight or she'd be fired. She hadn't lost in the first 12, and by August 1928, the next 12 had begun. If she couldn't reduce by their end, she would be removed from First National's roster. First National stipulated that she didn't have to lose a specific amount of weight. She just had to fit into the costume she wore in the patent leather kid one year earlier. After the first 12 weeks, Molly was still unable to don the cabaret regalia without bulging, Variety reported. So the second 12 checklist weeks began. 
By now, Molly's avoirdupois had become big enough news around the movie colony that the story expanded beyond the trade paper variety and onto the pages of fan magazines. Molly O'Day is waging a battle as important to her as Waterloo was to Napoleon, Photoplay wrote in August 1928. To remain on the screen, she must lose 20 pounds and lose them gracefully. If Napoleon had won, he would have been Emperor of Europe. If Molly wins, she will be a full-fledged star at First National with four pictures each year. Two weeks into the second 12-week period, Molly was able to squeeze into the patent leather kid costume and, as Variety put it, the official okay was put upon her appearance and she was put on salary again. One would think that good enough, but Molly had only begun her reduction, Variety continued. Perhaps the fact that she had already been pleasantly plump in the role that made her a star meant that she had to reduce further. Perhaps all the bullying had broken her. Regardless, in September 1928, Variety reported that Molly had checked into the Queen of the Angels Hospital, where she had several pounds of avoir de poids sliced from her hips and legs, in concert with what was described as a more strenuous diet than ever. This surgery was supposed to solve Molly's problem once and for all. Variety went on to put a positive spin on the obviously problematic results of the surgery, noting that Molly later returned to her studio weak and walking with a cane, but sylph-like and happy, and expects to see her name on the cast sheets shortly. This put a nearly romantic spin on a serious elective operation, which Molly herself likened to cruel and unusual punishment. Molly was quoted as saying the whole ordeal made her feel just like Marie Antoinette being dragged to the guillotine. Today, liposuction is the most commonly done cosmetic procedure in the country. In 1928, it decidedly wasn't. The first instance in which a doctor tried to sculpt the body, performed by Frenchman Dr. Charles Dujarier in 1921, intended to improve the look of the ankles and knees of a dancer by removing fat via a long incision down the leg. Dujarier, however, removed too much, which caused necrosis and the necessity of amputation, resulting in the first lawsuit in the history of plastic surgery. Weight loss surgery had evolved a bit since Dujarier's failed attempt, yet was still a risky proposition. Some skilled surgeons were able to remove abdominal fat when it formed an apron around the organs below. Removing fat from other areas, however, was significantly more difficult. To eliminate fat from the hips and legs, doctors would make incisions in them, and after scraping out some of the larger fat deposits, use a recent discovery, the diathermic current, to melt the remaining subcutaneous fat and let it drain out of the incisions. It was a form of electrosurgery, which had existed for less than two years when Molly went under the knife. This method, however, was mostly ineffective, especially when it came to the bodies of patients like Molly's. Whatever fat was drained usually grew back quickly. Dr. W.E. Balsinger, a prominent Hollywood plastic surgeon at the time, was quoted in Motion Picture Magazine lamenting the futility of Molly's surgery. I am decidedly opposed to operations that resort to freak treatment, such as cutting off the flesh from the hips and ankles to reduce the figure, he said. Fat comes from the inside of the body. It's not a condition of the outside, as so many people suppose. Suppose we do cut off a slice of flesh where we want it least. It'll grow right back. 
I've refused many drastic diet cases of the film people. It isn't my business to kill off my patients for the sake of their vanity. The papers reported that Dr. Robert B. Griffith, who performed Molly's surgery, had removed 5 to 10 pounds of flesh from Molly, who was under ether for an hour and 15 minutes. Like other experimental plastic surgeons of his day, Dr. Griffith was no stranger to lawsuits. The former house physician at Los Angeles' Regal Ambassador Hotel, in 1923 a woman sued him, saying he pocketed the $1,000 she gave him to buy a barrel of whiskey he had prescribed for her dying husband. Minnie Chaplin, the actress-wife of Charlie's half-brother Sid, sued Dr. Griffith for $100,000 over a botched nose job. It was settled for $30,000. Actor William H. Scott also sued him for $100,000 for the same reason. That suit was thrown out of court. In a January 1929 article published after Molly's surgery entitled Diet, the Menace of Hollywood, Photoplay wrote that, A large part of Griffith's clientele is made up of women who want to take it off at any cost. Actor George Raft, a then-Broadway dancer who would go on to stardom playing a gangster in films like 1932's Scarface, had met Molly at a party shortly after the patent leather kid. They began to date, and he proclaimed her to be one of the sweetest, most gentle women he'd ever met. In his autobiography, he wrote... She was doing pretty well in films, but she loved to overeat, and that weight proved to be her downfall. She tried some weird plastic surgery, where she paid quack doctors a fortune for an operation in which they tried to cut the fat off her body. When they sewed her up, she had seam scars running up the sides of her formerly beautiful body. The operation ruined her health, her career, and damn near killed her. It was the first time I realized what some people would do to make it and to stay on top in Hollywood. Ironically, the surgery Molly opted for in a desperate attempt to stay on top had the opposite effect. By December 1928, First National had dropped her, having given her no roles post-surgery. The Variety announcement of her dismissal, which ran under the headline, Weight-Reducing Molly O'Day is Losing Out, gave no reasoning for her being dropped, nor for First National's choice not to cast her while still under contract. A picture of her in the April 1929 issue of Photoplay ran alongside the caption, There's a little of the old fight and snap in Molly's face, but her operation left her wan and wistful. She looked far older than her 19 years. Throughout it all, Molly's sister Sally remained her staunchest ally, a one-woman street team. In interviews, Sally would demur when asked about her own, comparatively thriving career, eager instead to talk about Molly's. The Noonan family was very tight, at times to their detriment. Cleaning up their brother Jack's messes, for example, jeopardized the sisters' lives and livelihoods. Jack was sentenced to seven years at Folsom Prison for robbing orchestra leader Ted Lewis's house of over $75,000 in valuables in September 1929, but not before Sally went broke paying lawyers $35,000 to defend him. Even after he was sentenced, she had the sentence appealed and got Jack a new trial, on the grounds that he was mentally ill. At his second trial, Jack pled guilty to one charge of receiving stolen property and had his sentence reduced to one year. While Jack was on parole, Molly and Sally's car was pursued and shot at by two shadowy figures who were never caught, the bullet narrowly missing Sally, the driver. Shortly after Jack's conviction, 
he escaped from the county prison road camp where he was serving his time. Molly later recalled that her brother's unsavory mess had produced some deadly publicity for the two sister actresses. Sally and I were blacklisted at the studios for almost a year before we actually knew that the steamroller of censorship had run over us because of that publicity. It wasn't our fault, but there was nothing we could do about it. It happened right at a time when any kind of bad publicity brought thumbs down from the studios. Seeing as Molly had already been dropped by First National before her brother ran afoul of the law, this may be a bit of revisionist history on her part. Sally also consistently acted during the period, appearing in eight movies in 1929 and four in 1930. Molly, however, only appeared in two films over those two years, both of which starred Sally. The sisters signed a six-month contract with RKO that took them on the VOD circuit, which stipulated the gals performed for free for a week while their act was tinkered with, after which they were guaranteed two weeks at a joint salary of $1,500. It was the first time the vaudeville circuit had recruited movie actresses, and it was a dismal failure. They had traveled 3,000 miles without a set routine or rehearsal, and it showed. Variety described the act, which received little encouragement from the audience, as badly and hastily slapped together, and said that Molly exhibited considerable uneasiness on the stage. They were dropped after three weeks. Molly was washed up at 21. In November 1930, the same month Jack escaped, the two inseparable sisters even declared bankruptcy together. Sally having squandered her income on Jack's legal bills and Molly having no income to squander. Sally listed liabilities of $31,000 with assets of $3,000, and Molly reported liabilities of $13,000 with assets of $200 worth of clothing. They'd moved in with their mother at the newly constructed El Royale on Rossmore, south of Hollywood. Though there wasn't much work in the offing for either of them, they still listed their occupations in that year's census as actress, comma, motion picture. While the El Royale was a luxury apartment building, the fact remained the two sisters still lived with their mother in it, bereft of the servants of their youth. George Raft lived above them in one of the penthouses. Molly had sacrificed, she had suffered, she had had her own flesh sliced off her, doing the heretofore impossible, yet it seemingly wasn't good enough. For a career that showed such promise in 27, by 1932, Picture Play magazine was lamenting that Molly's first glowing achievement was never repeated. Today, she lingers on the fringe of the industry, living luxuriously with sisters Sally O'Neill in spite of their recent bankruptcy, and wearing evening gowns which reveal too, too much of Molly's buxom figure. If Molly was on the fringes of the industry in 1933, she was in good company. She was cast as the leading lady to Buster Keaton, who was trying to resurrect his own career, irreparably damaged by his alcoholism, in a picture called The Fisherman. A group of Coca-Cola distributors and other local businessmen had supplied financing for the film, which shot on location in St. Petersburg, Florida, in the hopes of establishing the state as a filmmaking center. The project was a shambolic mess. The backers finally gave up, and both Molly and Keaton were out of work again. It was a high-profile failure. As Keaton explained, the project had been widely publicized, so what I got from it was a couple of weeks' pay and another failure on my record. 
Molly made one more film while she was in Florida called Hired Wife, another independent project shot in St. Petersburg. Molly had played a lead in The Fisherman, but in Hired Wife, she could only land a supporting role. One trade publication predicted her name probably will mean little on the marquee. Ironically, Molly ended up losing about 30 pounds in Florida through no concerted effort of her own, presumably because she sweated it out. As Keaton wrote, it was so hot down there that it was impossible for Molly O'Day, the leading lady, to keep the makeup on her face. So even though she had gone to Florida to shoot two films which turned out to be failures, because she had come back skinny, she returned triumphant. Hollywood Magazine described her re-entry onto the Hollywood scene. A hundred male eyes glanced up from luncheon tables in the Brown Derby the other day when a lovely, slim girl breezed into the eatery. Suddenly the air was alive with the news that Molly O'Day was back, 30 pounds thinner. And while the weight was disappearing, Molly gained two inches in height. It's all a mystery to Molly. A newly svelte Molly declared she was ready for her comeback. She understood the odds were stacked against her. New players have an immeasurably better chance than those who have made something of a name in Hollywood and then slipped from sight, she told the Associated Press in 1934. It's like being put on the spot. The finger seems to be on you. For nervous strain, the sense of being under a sentence, I imagine it's comparable to being marked by a gangster. She vowed that she had returned for good. I never intend to lose Hollywood again. Once having held a more or less important place in pictures, it is like giving up life to lose it. But she did lose it. Her last role came just a year later, in 1935's Skull and Crown, a low-budget film starring Rin Tin Tin, Jr. Molly got third billing under a dog. With the death of her career, however, came life. She quickly gave birth at the age of 24 to her first daughter with her new husband, comedian Jack Durant of the vaudeville act Mitchell and Durant. In one final attempt at a career, she signed with Victory Pictures, another low-budget studio, but no role materialized. Victory's studio burned down soon after. A Los Angeles Times headline read, Actors flee for their lives as fire sweeps film studio. It's easy to visualize them running harried out to Venice Boulevard as flames lick at their heels. Molly eventually had four kids with Durant. She was a good mom, nurturing, supportive, protective. She encouraged two of her girls to act. She didn't tell them about her own struggles with the industry, shielding them from the pain she endured as an adolescent. She divorced Durant in 51 after 17 years of marriage. The divorce announcement and billboard listed him as a comic and her as a former pick actress. A blurb in the social pages of the Palm Springs Desert Sun a year earlier proclaimed Handsome James Keniston, socialite and member of the well-known Keniston family, was seen gallantly kissing the hand of Molly O'Day. Keniston's brother Robert had, at the time, been married to former silent film star Billy Dove for almost 20 years. The Kenistons were considered to be great catches, striking, socially connected men with oil money. Molly married James in 52 and divorced him in 1956. In the press photos of her sitting in the courtroom awaiting trial, she looks slim and stunning in a skirt suit, Betty Davis-esque. 
What the press described as the pranks Keniston would subject her to, we now would describe as spousal abuse. She testified in court that, for no reason, he once smashed a raw egg on her head at a dinner party. The next morning, she awoke to find he had squeezed an entire tube of shaving cream on her head. One Thanksgiving, he kicked her while she was basting a turkey and her head landed in the oven with the bird. A court order barred him from entering their home during the trial. Molly claimed that she had to call the sheriff for protection multiple times during their marriage. James, who had a trust fund worth $350,000, was ordered to pay Molly $50,000 over a 10-year period and give her their $60,000 home and half his interest in oil and gas holdings in New Mexico. The papers, once again, referred to her as a former movie actress. Molly never spoke much about her surgery or the hell she went through trying to conform to Hollywood's beauty standards. In her final interview, conducted shortly before her death at the age of 88, she simply stated that that period of her life bothered and saddened her. In the same interview, she was asked how she'd like to be remembered, what she felt was her greatest contribution to the world. She laughed. My greatest contribution, she asked. I will leave that up to someone else to say. I was happy to be an actress. I was a natural, and because of it, I remain remembered. I was a good actress, and that was it. If only that were it. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Megan Keister. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. That's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon, and the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. We'll be back next week with another tale about the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.